Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 8 through 15. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. And that is the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, please bless your word to us. And we pray that Jesus Christ, our Savior, would be exalted. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Fairly recent statistics indicate that even to this day, roughly seven in ten Americans identify with some form of Christianity. It's a pretty big majority there. Seven out of ten Americans. Now we're talking broad categories of Christianity here, of course. Uh, all shapes and sizes of Protestantism plus Roman Catholicism and everything else. But seven, to, seven in ten, roughly speaking, of Americans identify as Christian in one form or another. Then an additional 2% of Americans are Jewish and about 1% are Muslim. And the point I'm making here is that Christianity, certainly, and then Judaism and Islam are all monotheistic religions. Polytheism, the idea or the worship of or the observance of the existence of multiple gods, is really something. If there's anything that's foreign to our culture, it would be that uh, in terms of religion. Um, So we don't really grasp the mind of the polytheist. Uh, But, of course, ancient cultures... uh, uh, we're, we're very polytheistic, and there are some modern ones that are as well, but in polytheistic cultures, take for instance the ancient Greeks or the ancient Romans, different gods in their pantheon of gods uh, were in charge of different aspects of life. And within those pantheons, those, those, the, the array of gods that they acknowledged and in some cases worshipped, there was almost always a god of war. Now for the Romans, uh, the god of war was Mars. And over time, the, 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 the Romans' understanding of their god, Mars, uh, came to correspond more and more closely to the Greek god, Ares. Ares was the Greek god of war. 
Uh, and what I found out in some of my study this week was uh, Ares, among the Greeks, wasn't a very popular god. There weren't too many people that liked him all that much among the ancient Greeks. Not too many people actually worshipped him, except for the Spartans. But, you know, they, they, it, the Spartans thought Ares was just the bomb. But uh, most Greeks just didn't care for Ares too much. Um, and that's kind of interesting because most Americans don't like to think of God as a, a god of war either. Um, what we're looking at in this passage tonight is, a, is another passage that squarely confronts uh, man-made conceptions of God, man-made perceptions about God. Because as you know quite well, people like to think of God as love. They like to think of God as compassionate, as a God who's accepting of people who loves people as they are. And to an extent, with with some uh, qualifications, all those things are true about God, but but what people want, honestly, is they want a God who's tame. People want a God who's safe. In fact, I think when you get right down to it, most people would rather think of God as, as a peer rather than Lord. Well, he's one of us. He's like us, just stronger, smarter. Have you ever thought of that? People, people want to understand God as, as a peer, not as Lord. But what this text shows us is that the Lord is an invincible divine warrior who crushes his foes and saves his people. That's what this passage is teaching us about God, and that's why I titled the sermon, The God of War. We don't think of God as the God of War, but we serve one God, and there is only one God. There is no other, and so he's obviously the God of War, and he manifests himself in Scripture as the God of War in various places, including this one before us today. What we see in the first place is God's awesome advance. He's on the move. He's at work. And Habakkuk in this passage envisions the the whole creation kind of in a state of upheaval before Almighty God. So we read about the rivers and about the sea in verse 8. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? Sometimes if you drive your automobile through standing water and it splashes up, you know how that happens when there's water maybe on the side of the road or in the gutter and it's coming out into the street and if you go through it quickly, it splashes water. Uh, There's a place over here at the corner of the entrance of our parking lot that tends to have a lot of water pooling if there's been rain. And sometimes, if I'm feeling kind of silly and irresponsible, I'll drive through that water really fast and make big splashes. It's great fun. Um, But imagine, that's nothing compared to God's chariot over the vast depths and how his presence and his advance disturbs the water in such a way that Habakkuk responds as he does here in verse 8. 
Now, in the consciousness, the national consciousness of Israel, the idea of God moving upon and affecting the waters would have brought to their minds the the plagues, for instance, on the Nile when they were in Egypt, how God struck the Nile and turned it into blood. And then after they'd been brought out of the land of Egypt and they came to the Red Sea, how God mightily parted the Red Sea so they walked through on dry land. And if you take accounts of those things from various parts of Scripture, it, kind of, it really blows apart this notion that, it, well, it was just shallow water and it had dried up. You know, secularists will try to explain it away in ways like that. But the Scripture tells us that the, the Red Sea stood up like a wall. The water was like a wall on either side of them. This was a supernatural occurrence. And that would be part of the national identity and the national consciousness of the people of Israel when they think of God and how the waters respond to the mighty presence of God. In verse 10, when it speaks of the deep giving forth its voice and the deep lifting its hands on high, that's the sound of these mighty waters, the waters of the earth responding to the presence of God and the violent waves when it li- they're likened to hands reaching up in these violent, uh, turbulent waters. And so here's Habakkuk. He's imagining these things. He's envisioning these things. Perhaps the Holy Spirit is bringing to his mind pictures like this. And in awe of God's power, he's, he's saying, were you angry with the rivers? I mean, looking at how the waters responded to Almighty God. He wonders, well, was your wrath against them? Of course, he knows ultimately that it wasn't. But um, then we have not only the rivers and the sea, but we have the mountains writhing at the sight of God. And, you know, mountains, they're the epitome, the epitome of solidity and of strength and of permanence. And yet they writhe, they tremble before the Lord who made them. And not only the, the waters and the mountains, but then the celestial bodies, the heavenly bodies. Verse 11 says, they stood still. Look at it in verse 11. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped. This brought to mind what happens when, when you've got a room full of soldiers or marines and the commander enters the room. When the commander comes into the room and you've got a bunch of troops, uh, they all immediately jump to attention because their commander is present. And almost always the commander will pretty quickly say, carry on or as you were, but until he does, they stand still. And that's what the heavenly bodies do before God Almighty. The sun and the moon were created by God to be givers of light. And yet they yield and they bow before the light of God. So the creation is in upheaval before God Almighty. And God himself is pictured as a warrior who's on the march. Look at verse 12 with me again. You marched through the earth in fury threshed the nations in anger. So you see God, he's on, he's on the mark. And what is he doing? He's threshing the nations in anger, the verse says. 
Now, when you see the word thresh or threshing in the scriptures, if it's not referring to the literal process of threshing grain, it's usually a reference to judgment or reference to uh, destruction or retribution upon one's enemies. So, not long ago when we were in the prophecy of Micah, Micah chapter 4 verse 13 says, God says to his, to his children, arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron and I will make your hoofs bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples. So this threshing is a form of judgment. It's a picture of judgment. And then God is pictured in this awesome advance of his. He's pictured as a warrior, uh, a warrior king in a chariot. Look at verse 8 again, the second part of the verse. Was your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? So you see God being pictured in his chariot. Same in verse 15, although chariot isn't specifically mentioned, it mentions the horses again. You trampled the sea, in verse 15, with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Now, when God brought Israel through the Red Sea, and they arrived on the other side, and then God caused the sea to close on the Egyptians, and he destroyed the entire army of the Egyptians. Israel sang a song. They sang a song of celebration and of praise, and it's sometimes called the Song of Moses. You can find it in Exodus chapter 15, and at that point scripture says this the lord is a man of war that's what it literally says a man of war in other words he's a warrior he's the divine warrior now yes god is love yes he is full of compassion yes god is our heavenly father but never let those truths crowd out the fact that He is the Lord of hosts. That means He's the Lord of armies. He is the Lord strong and mighty. He's the Lord mighty in battle. He is the God of war. So that's what we read about God's awesome advance. Let's consider now God's mighty weapons that the passage describes for us. It first mentions His bow. Verse 9, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. In other words, he's unpacking his weapons. He's taking them out. He's getting ready to use them. God's wrath is often likened to the arrows of a warrior. And so, when Israel was wandering in the wilderness, and Balak hired the the wicked Balaam to come and curse Israel, and he couldn't do it. Every time he was commanded by Balak to curse Israel. All Balaam could do was bless. And so, in one of his oracles, this is what Balaam said. He said, God brings Israel out of Egypt and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. That's what God would do. And he'd do it through his people but ultimately is the work of God, the divine warrior. Or in the Psalms, many references to God's wrath and making God's wrath likened to arrows. Psalm 7, verse 12 and 13 says, God has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. 
And in verse 11 of our text, it seems that God's arrows are being compared to lightning. They're certainly being described in terms of light, the light of your arrows as they sped. That verse also makes reference to his spear, so that's the second weapon that's specifically mentioned here, his glittering spear, a spear of metal that's been shined, polished to a shine, ready to be wielded by God. And there are other weapons that are implied, although not specifically named. For instance, the sword, I think, is in view in verse 13. At the end there, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. I like the way the New American Standard translates that. ESV says laying him bare. New American Standard says to lay him open. As if with a slash of a sharp sword, he eviscerates his enemy. And you notice what God is able to do. He even uses his enemy's own weapons against them. Do you see that in verse 14? You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors. There are a couple of really uh, fascinating examples of this very thing in Scripture. Right? One of, there was one of David's mighty men. His name was Benaiah. And Scripture tells us that this Benaiah, at one point when he was fighting with the Egyptians, he killed an Egyptian. It says this man was very tall, he was very impressive, and he had this big spear. And Benaiah had a staff, and with his own staff, he disarmed the Egyptian and killed the Egyptian with his own spear. God can do that and more. He can turn the tools, he can turn the weapons, he can turn the plans of the wicked against them. Well, that's God's mighty weapons. He's depicted as a dread warrior. He's depicted as a mighty champion. Fully armed, fully equipped for battle. Fearsome and invincible. He is the God of war. God crushes his foes. He will ultimately destroy all of his enemies. Our catechism tells us that Jesus in the office of king will destroy all of his and our enemies. But he's going to do something else as well. Not only will he certainly destroy all of his enemies, he will also very certainly, most certainly, save all of his people. Which brings us to our final point, God's ultimate objective. What is his chariot called there in verse 8? It's called his chariot of salvation. The Lord is an invincible divine warrior who crushes his foes and saves his people. Why does God march through the earth in fury? Why does he thresh the nations? Because they have rebelled against him and because they have oppressed his people. And he will not tolerate it. The invincible divine warrior goes forth to save. Verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. Habakkuk, I think, in those those words right there, gets the answer to his complaints in chapter 1 and 2, doesn't he? He wonders, what's God doing here? What's, What's at work? And he cries out to God because he doesn't understand. But here, God assures him in this 
divinely inspired prayer, this divinely inspired psalm, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. God is going to save. Isaiah prophesied of the Lord's campaign, his advance to save his people. Isaiah 63, verse 1, Who is this who comes from Edom in crimsoned garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Isaiah prophesied something and saw a vision similar to what Habakkuk is seeing here and praying and prophesying. It speaks of Christ. Christ came to seek and save the lost. Jesus Christ is the promised seed of the woman that we read of in Genesis chapter 3. He's the one that would come forth in what we call the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. The curse on the serpent that God uttered in Genesis 3 contained the first words of gospel, and they sounded like this as God speaks to to the serpent, to Satan. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise, or we could translate that, crush your head. Now, look again with me at verse 13 of our text. Second half of the verse. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked. Well, who is that? Who is the head of the house of the wicked? Well, in redemptive history, we could think of Egypt, and we can think of Pharaoh because he was the head of the house of that evil nation. In Habakkuk's day, we could think of Assyria and its king. Later, we could think of the Chaldeans. But what's the great house of the wicked? The ultimate house of wickedness. It's the kingdom of Satan. And of course, Satan himself would be the head of that house. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the promised seed who crushes the head of Satan. God's ultimate objective is the salvation of his people. Turn with me to Joshua chapter 5. Because this passage in Habakkuk is all about the invincible divine warrior. And I believe Joshua had an encounter with him. Joshua chapter 5. The Israelites have crossed into the promised land. They are about to begin their conquest. They're about to begin to take possession of it. And what happens to Joshua? Chapter 5, verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. 
don't have time to go through it all, but there's so much about that passage that shouts to us that that's the Lord Jesus Christ that Joshua saw. It's a pre-incarnate manifestation of our Savior come to lead the hosts of Israel. Come to lead them to victory. So, Jesus is compassionate. He's full of tender mercy. But he's also the warrior God who goes forth to conquer all of his and our enemies. He's the promised seed of the woman who will crush the head of the great dragon, the ancient serpent. And because he is, every Christian, every one of you and I and all of our brothers and sisters can say with the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. King Jesus crushes his foes. He's the invincible divine warrior. But he also is the savior of sinners. It's a trustworthy statement. Scripture tells us Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, but he did it in a most unexpected way, didn't he? He came into the world when he became incarnate, but he didn't come as the God of war. He came as a humble servant. He came not brandishing a sword or drawing a bow. He came as the good shepherd, and he laid down his life for the sheep. 